Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 114th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that made your binder a masterpiece. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face-to-Face Games. Face-to-FaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on Magic singles and sealed product with shipping to both the U.S. and Canada. Check out Face-to-Face card pricing via MTGPrice.com, whether building your deck or stockpiling a spec. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host, as always, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Afternoon, James. How are you on this uh, lovely spring weather in upstate (laughs) Toronto area? Uh, I'm stuck in a cloud right now um, with freezing rain falling all about me, Um, so I'm not really sure. But uh, it's been a busy week in MTG Finance, that's for sure. Yeah, I am uh, experiencing something similar. And also, you can probably hear the golf ball size of mucus. It's hiding my nasal capillaries. So I apologize if I sound (laughs) a little stuffed up. Um, Okay. Uh, Our show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG Finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. What's on the agenda this week? Uh, this week, we have a show in four parts. Segment one is our top movers. We're going to look at all the cards that have risen a good chunk over the past week. And we have a lot to talk about this week. Uh, these weeks come by roughly once or twice a year where we have this many that we have to talk about. And frankly, it's exhausting. So if you guys could spread this out a little bit better, I would appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> segment two, our cards to watch. James and I will talk about the only cards left in Magic that haven't spiked in price this week. Segment three, our metagame week in review. We'll touch a little bit on, uh, I guess, the legacy GP in Seattle last weekend. Uh, and finally, segment four, our topic of the week, we have with us Brian Nocenti, who is uh, has been a major part of the like high-end magic scene uh, for a very long time. Uh, but recently, uh, his name was making the rounds because he's decided to sell uh, a $300,000 chunk of his collection. So we're going to check in with him and uh, and get some information because that made our ears perk up because we're like, can I profit on this? <laughs> so let's start out. <laughs> Is that what you were thinking? Yeah, I was well, just mildly curious. <laughs> I'm curious and like maybe I can get a finder's fee. I don't know. Let's we'll see what happens because uh, I know plenty of people that have 300 grand to throw magic. Um, yeah. Segment one, our top movers. First card of the week. Uh, well, you know what? Let's do this. Let's just let's get the big spicy meatball out of the way. This week, we have, uh, by my count, 14 or 15 Masterpiece Series cards, uh, Expeditions, Inventions, and Invocations that that moved by more than 100%. And that's just the 100% cutoff. I think there were even more that were less than that, uh, but I didn't pull them in. We have, in uh, no major order here, Meek Stone, Mystic Gate, Vedelkin Shanticles, Gauntlet of Power, Rishadon... Pawn shop? No, wait, that's not supposed to be in there. Sorry. Yeah. Like, wait a minute. Wait masks. a minute. How did that sink in there? Uh, oh, okay. I see what happened. Meekstone, Mysticate, Vidalcan Shackles, Gauntlet of Power, Duplicate, Blood Moon, Watery Grave, Painter Servant, Mind's Eye, Planar Bridge, Choke, Overgrown Tomb, Static Orb, and Monocon Influence, all by at least 100%, um, with Monocon Influence at the top, supposedly at 750, although that's. Uh, you know, it went 45 to 400. So I'm not sure that that's actually 
going to hang around at $400. But uh, I mean, that's that's a lot of cards. And if you listen to this list, or if you and if you look at this, out of this list, like what are the like major tier one magic cards in here, right? You have Overgrown Tomb. Uh, I guess you would Watery Grave probably. Um, Blood Moon, I guess. But other than that, these are all like the tier two and tier three masterpieces. You've got Meek Stone, uh, Bad Elk and Shackles, Mystic Gate, you know, is not that popular, you know, is a popular land, but it's not like the Fetches and Shocks, right? Painter's Servant, Planar Bridge. So uh, people were really going after, essentially, after we saw all the tier one stuff, Mox Opal, Monoval, uh, you know, all the good stuff like that. This is people just going after everything they can get their hands on, essentially, uh, that's available. And it's it's a it's a buy first, ask shoot first ask questions later scenario um pretty wild and frankly you know we're gonna my expectations we'll see a lot of these regress a little bit uh but i think almost all these cards are gonna find new floors yeah i mean most of the people buying in at this point are a year late to the party i mean we raised the flag on this in december 2016 started buying in europe um you know shortly thereafter put a lot of money in between December 2016 and like June of 2017. And, you know, we were picking up things like Masterpiece Soul Ring and Mana Crypt and Mana Vault under like $80 US, um, along with all sorts of EDH staples, et cetera, as you all know. Um, at this point, some of these are going to pay off just fine. Some of them are going to be real long term holds, and some of them are going to retrace back to exactly where they started. Um, as the race to the bottom begins and people get like itchy trigger fingers. Um, Because the problem here is like if you picked up one or two copies, you don't need to be in a rush to move them. I mean, you're backstopped here by buy list uh, pricing on a lot of these that will emerge in the next like six to 12 months and give you an easy exit at or above where you got in. And I'm talking about things like static or invention, right? Like card sees some play in legacy, not a lot. Legacy is not a huge format really um but you'll get a chance to exit you just got to be patient um some of the other ones like overgrown tomb you know the wooded foothills the blood moons etc they can probably hold their new plateaus because um the underlying demand for the cards is high enough that they were just generally undervalued but it's amazing to me that like last summer we were having arguments with people during the first round of spikes where soul ring first touched over 200 um that you know, the the drain in inventory was all speculation. That was just simply not true at the time. Like when it when Soul Ring first started draining out in like January or February of 2017, um, I was able to sell copies easily at 150. As it got to 170, 180, they were still selling briskly. At 200, they still sold briskly. I've sold multiple copies recently over 250. The the demand is very real for the the tier one uh, masterpieces. Um, however, this recent series of price explosions is absolutely about cornering the market. This has been, this is a, there are a bunch of cards here that were sitting around selling occasionally and then sold all in a rush because vendors who we've, who we know and have talked to (laughs) went out and bought dozens, if not hundreds of copies of masterpieces. And, you know, that, that is absolutely about um hoarding and attempting to sell back into the market later and it will be up to the market to decide where to set the prices on some of these i mean briefly somebody posted an expedition mystic gate at 2000 uh-huh. on tcg player this week largely as a placeholder i'm sure um it's but, hard to hear us talk about you know, it 
it, it's tough. It, you know, Mystic Gate's a good example of a card where you're not quite sure where it's going to land because it was kind of languishing there in the like thirty to fifty dollar range for quite some time. You know, better part of two years. And but the card is actually played as a two of usually in modern and blue white control. Now that deck is not probably more than three or four percent of the metagame in real life. Um, and there is some, you know, modest EDH play as well. But can that card hold 75? Can it hold 100? Can it hold 125? Um, how many copies are going to flood back into the market as players slowly become aware that the spikes have taken place and attempt to capitalize? Um, is an EDH player who, you know, plays multiple formats and might happen to have a, a Expedit, uh, a masterpiece, mana vault, mana crypt, and soul ring all say in their Brea deck going to trade that in to get a piece of power. Oh, was that actually a question posed to me? I'm used to asking rhetorical oh. questions. I mean, it's rhetorical, but it's still answerable. Uh, okay, now I've actually forgotten it. What was it again? <laughs> what was it again? See, Travis doesn't listen on any no, of the cast. No, that I he's, was on. Listening. He's, he's probably playing Diablo in the background. No, I was listening and you asked the question and then there was a pause. I'm like, wait, was that aimed at me? Because like, <laughs> what was it? I, I said, do you think an EDH player who plays other formats might get tempted to sell, you know, Mana Crypt, Mana Vault and Soul Ring and turn it into a piece of power? Uh, an EDH player? No, uh, at least not a player who's exclusively EDH or, you know, primarily heavily edh playable because you can't play the power in edh and most of those guys are going to be like sure i could turn my soul ring you know i I picked up a soul ring early on and maybe i have like you know a fetch land that i pulled from a pack that i kept and if i sold both of them to my local uh my local grinder you know he can give me a played piece a played mox type of thing um they're not gonna what are they gonna do with it um it just sits on their shelf at that point which you know we're all magic players which means we all love collectibles so there is an appeal there but i'd have to imagine your average primarily edh player thinks owning power is cool but doesn't isn't willing to trade cards that they use on a regular basis for something like that now someone like you or i sure but i don't think we're the norm i don't think we're the standard i think one of the factors here is definitely that Okay, there's a few things going on. First of all, as you said, there are multiple tiers. So the masterpieces can probably be broadly classified into tier one, tier two, tier three. Tier one is stuff like Mox Opal and Aether Vial and Soul Ring. These are cards that are either played in multiples or played in multiple formats, or they are dominant in their formats as Soul Ring is. And uh, so long as they don't get banned, they are going to be in high demand for a long time. With that, with tier one stuff, you go as deep as you can possibly go. And, you know, it's a little late for that stuff now, but there's probably still meat on the bone, even for Masterpiece Soul Ring. If you could get a Masterpiece Soul Ring at 250 and sit on it for two years, you're probably going to double up into a 500 and you get to play with it in the interim. Um, the tier two stuff is, you know, stuff like Arcbound Ravager um, that uh, and maybe like Overgrown Tomb and stuff like that that sees play definitely um, in multiple formats, um, but might be limited to a single deck or the decks that run it only run one or two copies. And they are probably going to double up plus and hold that relatively well. Um, You wouldn't, for the obvious reasons, you don't want to be as deep on those as you are in tier ones. The tier three stuff, people that went really deep, I think are going to have trouble um, justifying it. Like if you bought 60 copies of Invocation Choke, it's got to be a buy list play because you're going to have trouble outing 60 copies retail. Um, if you got them at, like I was picking them up locally the other night 
for I think $30 US. Um, my target exit on those is anywhere between 60 and 80 and I'd be more than satisfied. I think they're, you know, if people are trying to sell them for 100 to 200, I think they're going to have a lot of trouble. Um, and first time I see a buy list that, that looks like, you know, retail in the 60 to 80 range minus fees, I'll just go ahead and out them because we can flip that into more exciting prospects. Um, so I'm curious to see how this all plays out. A lot of these plateaus are going to retrace. Um, especially on the tier three stuff. But, you know, one of the debates we were having on Twitter this week uh, amongst MTG finance folks was, you know, is there more latent demand for like, would you rather be in dual lands or masterpieces? And I thought that the, the argument was a little funky because obviously you wanted to be in masterpieces, but you wanted to be in masterpieces last year. So to me, that's a no brainer. Um, but if you're talking about, would you rather have a volcanic island or a masterpiece soul ring today? I actually think they're roughly roughly equivalent. Um, I think from here, I think from getting from the three hundred to five hundred dollar price point is about you know persistent demand for a top tier staple in its respective format, and knowing that the supply side is totally in your favor, and that's true of both of them. Um, it was Ed uh, that you know, coined the phrase that these are the modern reserve list. And he's right. They're never going to reprint them just like this. Um, even if they reprint the some of these cards again as masterpieces, they won't be the same frame uh, because they were all plain specific. And what we're going to see happen is that both of those class, you know, the tier one cards in both um, classes are going to appreciate. One of the things that people uh, forget when comparing uh, dual lands, for instance, like say revised duels to something like a masterpiece soul ring, is that there was three hundred thousand of each of the revised duels printed, and yes, a decent percentage of those have um, been lost to attrition over the years, lost in collections, thrown out, damaged, destroyed, whatever, altered, etc. Um, but there's only something like five to ten thousand of each of the masterpieces, so. Are you sure it's that low? That sounds really low. No, I've done the math multiple times. Um, The no, we don't have um, print runs, but you don't need them. You can just work it out by going like Wizards books three hundred million a year or whatever for Magic the brand. We know twenty million of that is MG Magic Online. That leaves two eighty, and then you can divide percentages between the various major sets for the year and leave some aside for ancillary products. So if you assume that like 15% of total uh, product sales is stuff like dual decks and um, all the sidebar stuff, commander decks, et cetera. And then you assume that if you assume that say um, 80% of it is the four main sets of the year, then the fall set is probably 35% of that. And you can work out number of uh, boxes and cases from that number. Um, and, and you know what the drop rate is for masterpieces. So you can fiddle with the, you know, all of those little levers if you don't believe one or more of those numbers, but almost no matter what re- like reasonable way you fiddle with them, you're still going to get a number certainly south of 15,000. And the numbers I've gotten have always been between eight, eight and 10,000. Mm. And, and c- because keep in mind, there was like, these these were like if there had only been like three masterpieces per set, then the numbers would be way way higher, right? Because it's the drop rate across how big the sets were. I mean, the masterpiece sets right. themselves, and and Kaladesh had like 
what 30 masterpieces or something uh that was four it was 45 between the two so it was 25 and 20 i think right so i mean that's quite a lot right so and there's only 10 dual lands so um that's part of it if there if there had been 40 dual lands then there would be much less of each duel Mm -hmm. um depending on well that's that's not exactly true actually but (laughs) because they're not released in the same way but the, the point remains that the masterpieces certain there are way way less of them printed than revised duels now are there less of them printed than uh revised duels that are currently still in the market accessible that's debatable um but i've seen hordes of duels in vendor hands that are just as big as masterpiece piles and depending on which masterpiece you're talking about you can argue that the demand profile is actually much higher Duels are only useful in Legacy, Vintage, and EDH. Um, something like a Masterpiece Mox Opal is important in Modern, which is a much bigger format. Um, something like a Masterpiece Soul Ring is like the, pin- the the number one card in EDH, which might be the most important format in the game right now. So, you know, there's a lot of factors in play, um, but I net out on that as those are both good investments. Go ahead, finish your thought. You know, like, and, and how, whether you want it to be in one or the other is, should be examined from when the opportunity existed a year ago. Because if you're looking at these cards post spike and both duels and most masterpieces have spiked recently, um, the spikes were way bigger on the masterpieces. So the opportunity was clearly better there now. And and for the tier one stuff, there's there is no doubt anymore as to whether you'll be able to sell into those numbers. People are constantly like during that last that end of quarter eBay sale, I moved like fifteen hundred dollars in masterpieces in twenty four hours. Hmm. Uh, all right. So I enjoy that you listen to Cartel because it means I get to have the same argument again six days later. <laughs> uh, I th- those are all fair points. I think those are all fair points and probably pretty close to what I might have been trying to express on the cast in some capacity as well. Uh, neither of them are bad. Uh, they have different strengths. Masterpieces definitely have provided better gains for the most part overall. They definitely feel like they're easier to sell. Um, I think, you know, I also think part of the perspective on this can be influenced pretty heavily based on where you live. If you are in an area where a lot of people like Legacy, it's really easy to see a lot of people like trying to buy those cards, you know, who want to buy duels type of thing. And you're like, oh, this is really popular. If you live in an area where there is no legacy scene, you're like, nobody likes this. Why would I, uh, you know, want to own duels? The demand for that is non-existent. So that's, I think, a difficult bubble for a lot of us to step out of for the most part. And, and I think in general, when you're talking about magic speculation, um, being a masterpiece or being on the reserve list is a really solid backing which is what makes both of those specs good. Yeah. But but more importantly is the supply side in con- taken into consideration while well, while taking into consideration um the current price point versus the potential. We've seen over and over again that cards can get into the few hundred dollar range and still sell if they're important. So if they're a premium version of a card. So if you have an opportunity that's sub 100 and it looks like it could get there, those are typically going to be your easiest and best targets. 
So if you have a dual that is you know, already $500 or a masterpiece silver ring that's already $300, you're going to have more trouble getting to the next tier because there is more resistance. The curve is not linear. It, it gets steeper and steeper the higher the price point gets because every you know few hundred dollars is a psychological barrier that is harder and harder to surmount and knocks a bunch of people out of the marketplace that aren't willing to spend that kind of money. Right. And it, it's the higher the price, the, the harder it is to sell them. Uh, although, you know, it's interesting because it fe- feels like we are doing a pretty good job of combating that this time around. Um, I know we've been seeing copies of like Soul Ring uh, actually sell at 260 and $300. Uh, so there's yep. there's people that are paying that money for that card. And even though it seems might seem crazy that it would happen, uh, it is. Um, so I don't know. It seems like these are we're definitely finding out what the limits of that sort of mentality is in the magic world, and, and uh, in a way that we haven't in quite some time, right? Uh, I, I think Masterpiece Silvering is a definite candidate to hit five hundred within five years, and within ten years could be a thousand dollar card. Wow, that's a it's a strong a ten years a thousand dollars for Solring. You don't think they'll print another version that's just as cool that kind of pulls the demand on that a little bit? It would have to be a, a masterpiece or equivalent. Hmm. Uh, it could be a judge foil with really great art. Maybe, maybe, and that could happen. But like, if, if you look at the demand profile for masterpiece Soul ring versus, say, something like judge foil Gaia's cradle. It's not close. Like the soul ring has to have a hundred times the demand in terms of every EDH player that can afford it would like one in their deck. Yeah. I mean, but there's way less cradle, probably way less cradles and everything else. Right. I don't know. Judge foils from what? 10 years ago. Mm, I don't know when cradle was foiled. That feels like it would have been longer ago. And and every judge got one, right? Uh, like every judge, because back then I think I, I don't think it was limited to tier two. The old program was every judge got one. Uh, let's see, this has ninety eight stamped on it. Yeah. So were there ten thousand judges at that point in the program? <laughs> that better be a rhetorical question. <laughs> I certainly yeah, I, I I don't know the answer to that either. Um. I, I think you're right. I think it's more rare, but I also think the demand is much lower. Unless you're playing Legacy Elves or you have a token-based strategy in EDH, you just don't need or want that card. Hmm. There's also collect. There's also collector demand, but that also applies to the the Masterpiece series. I mean, people are going to be like my dad doesn't play EDH, but he owns every Masterpiece and got them cheap because he wanted a full yeah. set. And those people, those people, when this, you know, that will net never come out <laughs> like and, until he passes away it, none of those cards ever exit his collection so the attrition rate on these is going to be high yeah i mean i own i don't i actually don't own that many for personal use but i'm not planning on getting rid of the ones that i do have <clears throat> yeah all right so we've we've harped on that for a long time i think the the bottom line is that people have made very good money on masterpieces to this point this latest sequence of uh price explosions is largely about cornering the market and it will be up to the market to determine what happens next. Um, I, I would expect some significant retracing and then a slow, steady gain pattern over the next few years since there really just isn't more supply to get. I think one of the side effects of this will be that all of the boxes that these cards come out of are also going to go up some. 
Uh, yeah, that could definitely matter. And especially if we see these... Uh, sorry, let me find my train of thought. Especially if we see cards in these sets rise independently. So if Kaladesh ends up having two or three cards that are... You know, if Sahili Rai is, ends up being really good and modern and that becomes like a staple... You know, if she's something approaching the next Liliana the Veil, which she's not, but like, you know, in a you know scenario roughly equivalent to that, uh, puts a lot of additional demand on that as well. Yeah, you could see Kaladesh and Aether Revolt boxes really move. Uh, of the three blocks, that's the one I would target. Um, and I like foreign boxes of Kaladesh especially. Hmm. Still available in the like 100 to 120 range. Those are future $200 boxes. I have no doubt in my mind. The total EV contribution of this stuff is only going to, even if it all spikes across the board and holds, is only going to be like plus 10, plus $15. But that's a nice underpinning um, for a box opening. And people don't care. Like, all you got to do is watch videos of like alpha investments, like selling revised boosters to people on the floor at a GP on YouTube. And you'll see that. Despite having absolutely terrible odds, people are happy to throw down $100 and roll the dice. Yeah, people do love to gamble. They're very dumb. Yep. Magic layers, yeah. especially. I mean, booster boxes and booster packs are just gambling, and people are very susceptible to that. <laughs> so uh, I have every reason to believe that Kaladish, like Kaladish boxes will probably break out of the pack and be worth something down the road. Hmm. <laughs> that would be funny. Um I mean, if Masterpiece Soul Ring hits 500 and there are 10 others that hold 200 plus, for sure. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, would you rather open a box of that or a box of Shadows over Innistrad? I mean, you're, the odds of you hitting that are so low. One, one in three. Of hitting that card, yes, but getting an invention is one in three, right? Three, there's two per case. Uh... Yeah, I get. Yeah, it was probably in that ballpark. It's been a while now since we've talked about it, but I think that's likely accurate. Yeah, I think it's two a case. So you have like any given box, you have a one in three chance of pulling out something worth at least fifty dollars, even after whatever retraces happen here, and a good chunk of them are worth over a hundred now. Hmm, that'll be funny if Kaladesh packs are suddenly worth thirty bucks or something. Yeah, I don't think we're gonna we're heading there, but I think like give it three years, I think Kaladesh boxes will only be available over 150. We've already seen Battle for Zendikar boxes drying up, right? Uh, have we? I don't know. Let me see what the lowest price battle. Yeah, they've they've been up a bit. Battle for Zendikar booster box eBay bin lowest price is currently sitting at about a hundred dollars, and you could get them for as low as sixty not so long ago. Hmm. hmm. So that's that's decent appreciation. If you bought a bunch at like 72 or something from Sports and More 6 months ago and you had like a 25% off coupon on eBay, you're already in good position. Yeah. I mean, I still don't really like buying booster boxes. I don't care for them. I think they're if even if the returns are solid, they're unwieldy. Uh the physical presence, but yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see the Kaladesh boxes do pretty well in that regard. Uh yeah, I mean, I, I, I given that that option is there, the only way my shipping to the U.S. works is because I'm not shipping boxes. <laughs> if, I, if I'm shipping boxes, the the appreciation has to be pretty serious.
But I mean, there's BFC boxes of Korean and Japanese for less than 120. I think those are solid. And I think the Kaladesh Russians are out there and also solid. All right. So we've spent 25 minutes talking about just that stuff. We still have a pile of other cards that uh, jumped this week. You want to dive in? Uh, Yeah, well, um, we'll start out with... uh... What might be the only reserve list card I've really apparently done well with is Suchi uh, from Antiquities. Non-foils, well, of course, non-foils from Antiquities. 35 to about 70 for pretty much a double up. Um, another one of these 93, 94 reserve list black border cards. Popular, useful, actually useful in the format. Uh, cool beans, I guess. Same deal as the rest of you them. You said you have some of these sitting around? I did back in late 2015. I scored a couple. I don't even remember what. I don't remember if it was 93.94 that was taking becoming popular in late 2015, or if there was something else or what. But I do remember buying a bunch of them. I've actually got a couple graded copies. I found an email that I picked up two PSA nines for thirty five dollars total, uh, which is feeling pretty good at the moment. I gotta say, yeah, that's pretty sweet. Nice, uh, nice. Uh, five or six times up over three years. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> That's not bad at all. So um, the next card on the list is one that I picked up for my Atraxa deck that I'm happy to be sitting on, a Legends copy of Sylvan Library. Um, one of the things we're seeing is that even cards that have been reprinted multiple times that are not on the reserve list, original versions that are still useful um, in in key formats uh, are seeing pretty serious traction this year. So Silver and Library moving from 50 to almost 100 for 100% gain um, and likely to continue to accelerate. I mean, this is one of the better green card selection spells you can play in EDH, um, sees pretty significant play in the format, and original copies are not going to get any less rare. All right. Uh, next, we've got Saprolene Symbiosis from Invasion. Uh, f- foils from 650 to 13. Uh, this is on the back of, uh, what's his name? Uh, Slime Slimefoot, that's what it is. Who lets you, you, every opponent loses a life and you gain a life for each Saprolene that dies. Uh, So this is a four mana that puts a one, one sapling into play for each creature you control. So if you've got a bunch of creatures in play and you cast sapling symbiosis, you can dump three to 30 saplings into play. This is essentially a one shot kill. Actually, now that I think about it, if you've got enough creatures in play uh, with, with slime foot. So that's, that's kind of nifty. Um, in a, in a sack outlet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to assume you're going to, yeah. Uh, or, you know, and you can actually cast this as an instant too. I left that part out if you pay two more. So you can do this in response to a wrath if you have a large board. You dump this in play. Oops, I had 20 creatures. Now I have 20 more. They're all saplings. They're all going to die. Everyone's going to lose 40. Uh, good, good game. So the only, <laughs> card, the, the only card that I bought um, in response to potential popularity for Slimefoot was foil copies of Sapperling Burst were only $5. And that lets you make a whole bunch of Sapperling tokens. Basically, the way that enchantment works is it's four and a green, comes into play with seven counters on it. It has fading. You take a counter off and it makes a, a Sapperling um, uh, of power and toughness equal to the number that are in play. So if you take them all off, they all hit the table and die simultaneously and trigger Slimefoot seven times. 
or six times, I think. I think it's six because I think the last one, they all become zero zeros. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure if it's six or seven triggers you get, but it's a lot. That's <laughs> pretty nice. Pretty nice. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, $5 for a 20-year-old rare. I mean, a 20-year-old uh, foil. Right. That's what positions these so well is the uh, the scarcity of them and why we might end up seeing a lot of other Sepralene and Thalid based cards uh, spike a good bit in the coming weeks because we've never had to care about these types of cards before. There's never been any interest in them. And suddenly there's an EDH commander who cares a lot about them. And in the same way, we saw Nekusar drive several other cards uh, that we hadn't cared about previously. Uh, we could see Slimefoot push all of these cards. And because, again, Sepulchre and Thalids were old, right? These were from like Dominaria era. So there aren't like, they're not floating around from Innistrad. They're all from Invasion era. Uh, Supply is going to be really low on those guys. So if you are able to notice any of those that seem like they'd be great in that deck and are underpriced, there's probably still money on the table out there. If anything from Fallen Empires goes off because of that, <laughs> the bulk guys are going to have a field day. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. There'll be some guy who just lit a bunch of Fallen Empires on fire a week before and is like, oh. Probably literally lit it on fire too. Keep his house warm. Yeah. yeah. All, All right, right. What do you so got? Moving, moving, moving right along, we have Power Conduit from Mirrodin moving from the foils moving from 8 to 16. Um, this is on the back of it being able to mess with sagas, I'm guessing. Uh, yes. Yeah. Cause we talked about the non foil that like last week, didn't we? I think we've talked about this recently. This is like tap, remove a p- counter from a permanent you control, and then you get to put a charge counter on an artifact or a plus one plus one counter on a creature. So the whole idea here is that you keep your saga and play longer and re-trigger its effects multiple times. Mm-hmm. Uh, Inferno Titan from 20 magic, 2012 foils from 16 to like 35 for a little over a double up. Uh, the Ponza, green red land destruction deck uh has been running inferno titans uh, and it looks like people are trying to mop up some of the foils there there's a pretty deep well of supply between what was like m m11 m12 i don't think they were in m13 as well and then you also had like the buy the buy box they weren't buy box promos they were a, duels of the planeswalkers promo you could get um inferno titan grave titan and frost titan promos uh so there's a lot of foil inferno titans out there so i would be selling these foils if i had them uh just because there's so many to choose from and they're all basically the same thing looks like i I picked up some foils like a month ago for six bucks each so that should turn out all right yeah and i would i would dump them uh next on the list we have goblin lore from 10th edition foils moving from in theory 100 to 200 um you know, the Hollow One deck is doing uh, well, persistently well in in uh, modern lately. I'm not sure who's paying $200 for 10th edition foils, but I suppose there there might be some small fraction of that player base. Uh, I hope nobody's paying that for these cards, but uh, Magic players do dumb things, so maybe. <laughs> Next on the list, Nomata Grove Guardian from Planeshift Foils moving from 6 to 15. This is also, I'm assuming, Slimefoot. Uh, yeah, it is. What is it? Nomada. Nomada makes sapperlings when you, when you dump mana into them, right? Uh, let's see. Three mana, put yeah. one, one green sapperling in the play. And then you can sack a sapperling to get, to give it to, to them. So he's a sack outlet as well. 
that that seems like an auto include in that that edh deck yeah for sure so people are definitely farming those old sapling cards this is what i was talking about uh look at that my advice came true 60 seconds later <laughs> if only i had said this before uh, okay next yeah so we were, we were talking off cast about how slime foot was likely to create some spikes my one concern about how many and how deep and how long like whether they'll hold their plateaus is that dominaria doesn't just have one or two interesting commander cards it has a plethora of interesting commanding commander cards and i'm worried that the interest from commander players will be spread broadly across those cards and that the spikes will be relatively shallow as a result um it's hard to say so we i talked about nekusar earlier and nekusar having been uh a lot of spikes a while ago um, with cards that we never had to care about before, which is what made it interesting. Um, and Slimefoot gives us a position where we could see that again. It's not going to be like the masterpieces where the returns are going to be so hefty in terms of absolute dollar values. Uh, you know, I know Jason said it was the best card to happen to MTG Finance this year, which is a bit hyperbolic, but I don't think that it is entirely wrong either, mostly because. It's doing a lot of things that commander players like to do, especially in those colors. And more importantly, it it is unlocking a subset of cards that no one has ever cared about prior to today. So like Nomada, excuse me, Grove Guardian and Saprolane Symbiosis, like those cards just got unlocked in a way that just it doesn't happen all that often. So I think that's kind of what he's referring to. And I don't think he's necessarily wrong either. So I know you're a big fan of the supply side demand. And, you know, I, I am too. I, I operate primarily in that space myself. Uh, but we would be, I think, uh, ignoring our familiarity with the the topic, with the content of magic to think that we're not able to identify when there could be a good spike on stuff like this. Well, I mean, I think that the sweet spot is the stuff we're seeing in this list. It's the old foils like that, as you said, are unlocked. So um, I don't really want to go deep on Sapperling Burst in general, but Sapperling Burst foils fine. Nomada, eh, but Nomada foil, sure. Because 20-year-old foils, the, the, the supply is just not that deep. And ones in like pristine condition, definitely not that deep. Well, yeah, and I'm, I am far more inclined to go for foils myself. Um, simply because the non-foils you might pick up for 15 cents and maybe they hit $2, which are a nightmare to sell, especially to commander players because you're doing one at a time. So if you can buy 200 of them, that's fine because you can buy list them. But in general, yeah, I would say the foils are the ones you want to be involved in. Yeah. Next on the list, we have Combat Celebrant, one of the only standard standouts um, from uh, the list this week. Amonkhet foils going from 6 to 14 for 150% plus gain. Um, there was a card in Dominaria that triggered this, but I'm not sure what it was. Uh, it's part of um, God Pharaoh's Gift because you put you God Pharaoh's Gift to Combat Celebrant into play who then attacks and gives you another attack phase, another attack phase, which sure is God Pharaoh's gift again. I remember that is, that is part of the, or if you have, or if you have combat celebrant in play ahead of time, you attack with it and then you get two God Pharaoh's gifts triggers. Oh yeah. It's not, it's not dominaria at all. I got that totally wrong. You're right. It's the blue red God Pharaoh's gift deck that runs walking ballista, Beaumont courier, fanatical firebrand, minister of inquiries, war kite marauder, champion of wits, 
combat celebrant is a four of there all of a sudden and then trophy mage vizier of many faces and four gate to the afterlife to god pharaoh's gift yeah and it was second place at a recent uh scg standard icq yep I was all set to tell people to go buy Combat Celebrant and I was going to be like, wow, I haven't recommended a standard card in forever and it was already gone. I think people bought it like <clears throat> Saturday morning. I was like, okay, never mind. Right. Uh, so foil spreading seas from Zendikar moving from 35 to 90 apparently. This is your mer- merfolk. This is like people like Corbin that throw silly money at merfolk foils. Uh, yeah, you could do that. It also shows up in a variety of other odds and ends like tier six modern decks um as well as a few other places but yeah primarily merfolk i guess in a in in a format where specific lands matter and tron is a good chunk of the meta um being able to turn off tron can be important so i I would imagine there's some control decks that might be running this as well right yeah i know um i think one of the i don't think it was restore balance there's like a blue white prison deck that would run it just stymie mana production and put more enchantments onto the battlefield because it had an enchantment matters theme. But yeah, being able to nail Tron yeah. and stuff like that. And uh, you can make life miserable for John. You can stop Ink Moth Nexuses, stuff like that. Yeah, blue, blue-white blue control builds run four of it currently in modern. There was one that finished first place in a modern IQ recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, yeah, it's demand between the two. This is also uh, one of the places you sometimes see Mystic Gate. Yeah. Uh, also Spire of Industry out of Aether Revolt Foils 8 to like 20. Uh, I guess this is just on the back of continued standard play and also it's sneaking into modern too, right? And and that we just, it was one of my picks two weeks ago. Oh, was it? What was your, yeah. Uh, so let's see, there it is, Spire of Industry, four of and two strong modern decks. Okay. What are the modern decks? I don't remember. Uh, Lantern Control and Affinity. Hmm. Do they have another way to generate energy? Uh, no, no, no. This oh, is another. This is the other one. This, okay. This is this is the one that makes uh, any color as if you pay one life as long as you have an yes. artifact, and it can make colorless as the alternative. So it's like it's a go-to for any kind of tool back toolbox um, artifact deck that wants to be able to dip into different colors in its sideboard, um, and lets you do things like play galvanic blasts yep. and affinity. Nope, that makes sense. I was dumb and wrong um also command beacon 20 commander 2015 noun foils 15 to 35 uh which pretty good pretty healthy jump there a command beacon was a card that i wanted to buy but always felt too expensive um and now that trend continues (laughs) with it being 35 dollars 40 dollars i would be getting out of these i would be shoveling these out of my collection uh as fast as i could simply because i am not uh, i don't want to get caught up by reprint we know that there's another commander anthology coming this year. We don't know what the commanders are in it, but it could be one of the guys that has command beacon in it. Um, and they could also just put it in any other commander product. Uh, and while that won't destroy the prices, I mean, we know that like stuff like soul ring just rebounds over and over and over again. Um, it will definitely not still be a $35 card because that price is pretty heavily predicated on supply at the moment. So don't want to get your, your pants down. On the other hand, I would expect the Judge Foil Command Beacons to continue to accelerate higher. Um, I was buying those last summer in the $20 to $25 range and have been selling them briskly at closer to $50. Mm. 
and it's possible that selling out right now is too early. Um, it's also worth noticing, uh, noting that the Swell the Host deck from Commander 2015, the Azuri deck, is the one that has that card, and you can still get them for 50 bucks. So if you pull the Command Beacon out and flip it, you're getting the rest of that deck for very cheap. Oh, that's uh, pretty nice to know. Uh, what do you got next for us? Day of Destiny from Betrayers of Kamigawa, in theory going from $2 to $6. That's a 200% gain. That's on the back of it. Uh buffing all of your legends that are coming into the Dominaria block. We have Atog Atog foils from Odyssey, in theory going from 10 to 26. That's just a old foil that's uh, hard to come by. Altar of the Brood foils from Cons of Tarkir, going from 4 to 12. Um, that's on the back of uh, occasional play in both Modern and EDH. Then we've got Yogmoth Demon out of Antiquities, obviously non-foil, 10 to like 30. Another one of the, you know, Black Border Antiquities old reserve list card type of thing not too much new there uh stone rain out of champions of kamigawa foils from nine to 30 also part of the like green red ponza land destruction deck um that we talked about inferno titan from before uh and we also talked about seventh edition i think foil stone rains a week or two ago so this is just another version of it and i think there's two more so hang tight for the next two weeks uh and asceticism out of scars and mirrored and foils 19 to 65 for a 250% gain, Asceticism is the five mana green enchantment from Scars of Mirrodin that features um, Thrun Troll Aesthetic. It was uh, it was kind of nifty because you could see Thrun in the background of the art in Scars of Mirrodin and then Mirrodin and Besieged. You got to meet the troll in the art. Uh, it gives all your creatures hexproof and regenerates them, I believe, right? Is that the other uh, yeah, regenerate target creature? So pretty obnoxious. Uh, makes your creatures a pain in the ass to get rid of. Uh, popular in EDH because um, you again make make your guys hexproof and then regenerate them uh so you're left it's like was it hall- hallowed burial or uh whatever or bust essentially um yeah yeah <laughs> uh we've got strip mine with the even horizon from antiquities moving from 20 dollars to 90 in theory um the the continued attack on the first two years of magic um, is pushing all these cards up. I've, as I've said a couple of times, I've got a bunch of this stuff sitting around that I have no intention of selling any of it for another year or two. I want to see how far this stuff can push. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, at this point, you might as well hang on to all, all the antiquities era, legends era cards because uh, two years from now, they're unlikely to really have like gone down. If they haven't spiked yet, they're unlikely to go down. I would say, like any of the stuff post spike then you know if you have a chance to go out of say a thousand dollar piece of like power in unlimited exit into some cool stuff in europe sell it and and re-enter on a better card i i I think that the timelines support that but if you're you know more of a you know you don't want to you're not such a mover and shaker you just kind of want to um enjoy your slow steady appreciation then by all means just sit on your reserve list stuff Mm-hmm. Um, and your and and your first two years of magic stuff that may not be on the reserve list but is moving anyway yeah yep uh skirk prospector out of onslaught foils three to 15 i really wanted to be able to tell you guys about this but there was just no window for it skirk prospector is getting reprinted and it's going to show up in modern now so onslaught just missed that cutoff skirk prospector allows you to sacrifice goblins to add mana to your mana pool it could be an important component in making goblins suddenly good in modern so this is speculation that along with skirk prospector and goblin war chief showing up in modern um there's going to be a, a new goblin deck in modern uh 
After that, Charcoal Diamond, 7th edition foils, 15 to 100, supposedly, for nearly 600% gain. Uh, 7th edition foil, really? I think this is essentially the start and end of that conversation. Yeah, and that's not like market price, that $100. That's just the currently posted price. So, And, and a card that is very rarely played. So leave, leave the 7th edition foil collectors to their own nonsense and move right along. Uh, and why don't you finish us off? So we have Abashan Cephalid Emperor from Odyssey Foils in Theory moving from $3 to $20. Um, I'm not aware of what the catalyst is on that, are you? Uh, no, not really. I mean, it could just be an old foil that there was like two copies of for some reason. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sounds about right. Doesn't I mean, I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not seeing anything on the card that that makes me think of it being good now. All right, so let's talk a little bit about our picks of the week, cards to watch. Um, my first one this week is a reserve list card, Yavamaya Hollow, which I think I first called last summer closer to 15 when I was picking up a whole bunch of them over in Japan. Um, now it's at 30, but I think it's still got some a ways to go. Um, this is the non-foil version. Foils have gone off the charts. Um, they're up three or 400% this year. Um, this is a, a Urza's Block a uh, rare land that sees occasional play in EDH. It's on the reserve list. You can get them now for about 30 and it looks just about at the tipping point. It will probably make its way into a tipping point article on MTG price shortly. Um, I think it's going to get from 30 to 60 within the next year to 18 months. Yeah. Yavin Mayahalo is a longtime favorite of commander players uh, just because it's a, it's a utility land. doesn't really cost you anything. You get to keep all your guys alive. Has nifty art on top of that. Uh, I didn't realize this was is, is thirty bucks. I think thirty bucks probably was reasonable years ago, uh, and I, you know, I kind of didn't really think too much about it. But at this point, that's starting to sound like it's probably too low. Yeah, I mean, I've I, I have a pile that I put into my buy list uh, for Card Kingdom last night, where they are willing to give. Let me just see. Boy, what is this number? They are willing to give. Just about $26 with the 30% trade-in credit. And I think I'm going to take them back out of the cart. I, I think you sit on these for a year and, and look at it again. Yeah. I, I, as a reserve list card, it, you know, it's, it's hard for that not to be the case, right? It's, with the reserve list, it's essentially, it, it's never, is it going to be worth more? It's, is the opportunity cost too high? I mean, unless you're desperate to get something specific, you don't really want to be buy listing stuff that has just as much potential as whatever you're going to buy list into. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sending it, I've got about a thousand dollars of credit with Card Kingdom. I'm going to have another 2000 after this list. And all of the stuff I'm getting out of here is either bits and bobs from various collections, um, stuff from my own collection that was just sitting around or um, specs that have matured and are probably peaking. Um, you know, like I'm going to, these, these, they're giving almost a hundred dollars on the Leon of the Veil. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I like it. I think it's a good choice. Uh, and I don't think anyone's going to be upset to own a bunch of Yava My Hollows yep. down the road. What's your first pick? Uh, my first pick this week, uh, you know, I'm sticking with the theme of the uh, the theme within Magic for the time being. I'm going to start with Forbidden Orchard uh, out of the Zendikar Expeditions. Obviously, we're seeing a ton of movement on these types of cards right now, um, and might as well in, enjoy the ride while you can. Forbidden Orchard currently about thirty five dollars. You can find. Forbidden Orchard in. Let me get the number for you here. I had it in about 1,000 EDH decks. So pretty uh, pretty reasonable number. Um, I mean, 
we've, we're seeing a huge run on masterpiece cards right now. 30, 35 bucks is suddenly sounds very low for uh, masterpiece stuff. Um, uh, with a pretty good EDH profile, it sees vintage play um, and also some probably some occasional like weird modern legacy play. Nothing too serious there, though. Uh, but EDH in general is enough to push this at 35. You can easily ride this to 60, 70, probably really realistically $100. Um, so just hop it on the train. I'll, also has some of the best art of all of the all of the expeditions. It is very cool art. Yeah. Uh, it works very well in that frame. I don't know if I want to call it the best art. The expedition series in general had great art, but it it, it, look, it looks pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, I think this pick solid inventory is low as it is with all of this stuff. This is one of the ones that I expect to plat like peak and then plateau when it eventually gets bought out. Um, so it's like 30 something now. It's, they'll try to push it to 100. It'll fall back into 50 or 16. You'll still make money even if you have to yep. buy list it. It seems like you can lose here. Uh, all right, what's your other card this week? So the other reserve list card that's already spiked, but I think has even more room to go, is Academy Rector, um, also an Urza's uh, block uh, reserve list card from 20 years ago. Um, you'd be buying it at 50 bucks now, and you could have got in a lot lower a year or two ago. Um, but at 50 to get to 85 on the back that you probably have use for this in your EDH decks and or in your collection, um, if you're ever going to want it or need it, don't hold back. <laughs> They're not printing it ever again. And whether it gets to 70, 80, 90, or 100 doesn't really matter. You just can't go wrong with these cards at this point. Academy Rector is a pretty ridiculous card. And as soon as your EDH deck cares about enchantments, Academy Rector is part of the ride. Uh, Adding the fact that you occasionally get legacy demand out of this too. Not often, but it is out there. Uh, It is a very cool card uh, that you are going to feel bad spending that much money on, but you're probably supposed to anyways. And in a format where you're playing multiplayer and people have sweepers galore, anything that rattlesnakes like a wrath effect is really good. Like this is a like one, two for four that when it dies, lets you pull any enchantment out of your deck and put it into play. And the last thing they want is for you to pull out like omniscience or something right. in response to an empty board. That is what you do. You just slap this guy in the play and then he dies. Then you get omniscience and then people get angry at you. Yeah, I mean, so many and enchantments in general are the hardest permanents to remove in EDH um, because they're targeted by the, the least number of sweepers. So, yeah, a, a powerful strategy long term, a card that's never going down again. Easy. Yeah, I agree. Uh, swinging around to another expedition for me uh, this week is this is an odd one Sunken Hollow. Um, I was looking through the lands in EDH uh, and it turns out that these are actually fairly heavily played in EDH, like the Battle for Zendikar Checklands, and Sunken Hollow is the most played one um, by a pretty, pretty slim margin, uh, essentially inconsequential. But it also turns out that Blue Black is, as far as I can tell on EDH track, the most popular color pair in decks that are not monocolored. If that makes sense. So of all multicolored decks, blue black is the most likely to show up. I think if I'm reading that correctly, but that position sunk in hollow quite well. And it's, I mean, just alone, it's in 15,000 EDH decks right now. And it is a $20 expedition. So, well, there's not a lot of demand, like it's not a card you would think of. I think that there's actually quite a bit of latent demand for the card. Supply is not huge. So players are buying it. And I think we just haven't seen speculator attention turn to it yet. Uh, but I do think that, 
it will get there eventually. And even, you know, if, if it jumps to 50 or 60, that doesn't seem like that outrageous, but that's a, that's a triple up from 20 bucks. $20 expeditions that see actual play in EDH, no brainer. Yeah. I mean, this was the lowest priority a year ago, but at this point, seems super solid. <laughs> All right. And why don't you finish this off there? So another one that I've mentioned in the past that I, I think uh, is very close to its tipping point is Zendikar Resurgent Foils from Oath of the Gatewatch. Um, these are still available in, in and around the $5 range, but you're not going to be able to ve- go very deep on them before they push up into the more like $12 to $15 range. It's, it's a card that's in 12,000 EDH decks um, that doubles your mana, which is an effect that is always welcome in a format with a bajillion mana sinks. Um, big green decks uh, love this card in the format. Um, it's unlikely to see a reprint anytime soon. So I can see these foils getting up over 20 um, before you ever have any reason to, to uh, fear a reprint. Uh, yeah, I mean, Zendikar Resurgent obviously had EGH painted on it. From the moment it was revealed, uh, it looks like foils are finally starting to sneak up there now that they're like five bucks. I don't think they were that high initially. I think they were probably like $2 or something. But that mm-hmm. means that there's people are buying them and pushing that price up. So, uh, you're, you know, this is going to be a little bit of a wait, I think. But you're absolutely right that this is exactly the ED type of EDH card that every year, every time you turn around and look at this card, it's a couple bucks more than it was the last time. I mean, let's see. Check in on what the buy list price is for these foils. You can already buy, li- buy list these for like two to three bucks, depending on who you're dealing with. Um, and I suspect that. By the give it eighteen months, that number is going to be closer to like eight to ten. Mm, yeah, I don't doubt it. Okay, let's move into segment three, our metagame we can review. We'll touch briefly on GP Seattle, which was a Legacy Grand Prix last weekend, uh, showing us that Legacy is a wide open format, and you can play any Deathrite Shaman deck that you want to. Um, five <laughs> out of the top eight decks were were Deathrite Shaman decks. The exceptions being a lands deck, a miracles deck for some reason. Uh, two miracles decks, sorry, two miracles decks and a lands deck. Um, I. I don't know. I, I guess my would mostly just at this point be inclined to listen to people who are very well know legacy well. And if they're all saying that Deathrite Shaman needs to go and it does, that is going to have large impact on the format. Um, you're going to see those effects ripple. Uh, so keep in mind what, you know, start thinking about what might drop because Deathrite Shaman is no longer legal and what could ride, what got ba- what was bad because of Deathrite Shaman. For instance, Dredge is probably unplayable in Legacy because of how much Deathrite Shaman is out there. Will that change? You know, if Deathrite Shaman gets banned, I would expect to see a resurgence of that. And, you know, what Legacy Dredge decks would suddenly come roaring back or what Legacy specific cards are in the Dredge decks out there uh, that could come roaring back, you know, Shallow Grave and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm not convinced anything roars back in Legacy these days, but the, this card is a one-mana Planeswalker. It is insanely powerful. Um, I, I, I think that the Sultai versions of this deck, are, or of the decks that run it, and the four-color versions are some of my favorite Magic decks of all time in terms of their like efficiency, synergy, power level. Like, Who doesn't want to play with cards like Jace the Mind Sculptor, Liliana the Veil, Baleful Strix, Deathrite Shaman, Leovold, Snapcaster Mage? Just like everything you cast just feels ridiculous. Um, the sentiment seems to be that the card's too good. I think that we can all agree that's probably true. <laughs> it's banned and modern for the same reasons. Um, and I don't know how the format pivots after it's gone, um, but I'm curious to find out. And 
you know, what little money I pushed into this this spec like three years ago has already been forgiven. So yeah. by all um, means, get rid of it. Yeah. And, you know, it's people might make the point that legacy is a busted format. You do broken things, blah, blah, blah. Like it's brainstorms too good for that format, but it is the brainstorm format. Death Rite Shaman is too good for legacy, but it is not the Death Rite Shaman format. It is the brainstorm format. So they can, well, they, well, they should get rid of brainstorm. They can't, but they can get rid of Death Rite Shaman. So I think that's kind of my takeaway here. And this is only one event, of course. Um, you know, we can't, we can't judge whether or not a card should be legal or not based on a single event, but this is a single event in a string of events where Death Rite Shaman has been very powerful. Um, and the talking heads who, who know this stuff pretty well, keep tabs on the format. Uh, I think that's been a, a popular topic of conversation. Um, I'd be curious to see if it takes some of the wind out of the sails of Leovold. Can't turn to him anymore. At least not as easily. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not super fussed about this one way or the other. Legacy is not moving a lot of cards these days. No, no, and I agree. But, you know, it's, I guess it's worth being aware of. All right, let's let's blow through to the the by far the hottest segment um, of the day, and you know maybe of the season. We're going to turn over to a conversation with Brian Ascenti, one of the most important um, collectors in the U.S. I, I think it's fair to say, and uh, let's get to that. All right, so now on to segment four. This week we are joined by Brian Ascenti. Uh, Brian recently made a couple of waves in the finance community because he's selling a particularly large collection, uh, although he's been around for a very long time, probably uh, pretty much longer than James or I have. Uh, Brian, how are you tonight? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Great. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. Um, so can you give us a little bit of uh, background about yourself so our listeners kind of know who they're listening to? Yeah, so uh, I started – well. My MTG background is I started in Ice Age uh, when I was about seventh grade, uh, which was 1995. And I kept collecting and collecting until Invasion Block. The end of Invasion Block is when I went to college, so I quit uh, for quite some time. I sold the majority of my collection in, uh, in 1996, kept a couple decks, and then uh, came back in right around Mirrodin Block. Uh, and then came really hard back in Champions Block. <clears throat> After that, uh, I was a dealer, a small dealer, um, you know, with a couple of couple of friends of mine, uh, Morgan Chang, and I did some uh, tables in New Jersey and Philly. And uh, that's kind of how I got my start back into it. Um, had some disposable income and pretty much dumped all of it into magic. And quite, quite some time after that, um, you know, I started settling down, uh, started selling off some stuff. I had some summer stuff then, uh, and summer wasn't super hot at that point. So I sold off a little bit. I had still kept some. And then the summer market just went insane. <laughs> what, what year would have that been that you were selling that? Uh, I think it was 2000 in, gosh, uh, so 2009, I think, is when I got the bug to try and create a summer set. I got about 50 or 60 cards and was like, I don't have the financial backing to do this. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I had a lot of the good cards. I had 
I think six of the ten duels, I had the bigger cards. That's because that's what I always focus on. Early on, I always focus on the big cards because those are the ones that are going to kill you in the end. Um, I had Summer Serendib, Demonic Tutor, Counterspell. Uh, like I said, six of the ten duels, and that was that. That was pretty much it. I had a bunch of basic lands because basic lands were only like thirty five dollars oh then. Um, All right, so like, let's 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 back up the truck a second. I want to hear a little bit more about when you dove back in around Champions. Yeah. Were you coming back to the game primarily as a player? Um, I did Friday Night Magic. So I, I I've never been good enough to be a competitive player in my own mind. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so I've always been more of a collector than a player, but I, I always loved the game playing it. Uh, it's just all my friends around me were, <laughs> were just a lot better than I was with, with the rules and everything. Um, so, I mean, that, that's pretty much what what sparked my interest was, you know, okay, you know, I've never had a Black Lotus, you know, until I got in a, the Champions Block era because I didn't have the money to to buy one. Like and back then, we didn't really have the internet. Like right when I got into high school is when the internet started getting big. Yeah, um, yeah 90, ninety-three to ninety-five, it was like going from zero to a million. Oh yeah, it, like if you didn't know somebody that had a card, you were just you, you couldn't get one. That was just how it was. Um, and then you know, how do I know it's real? That was the other big mystery. Is is this card real? So, you know, do I want to? So, counterfeits a big deal at that time. Money on a card. Um, they weren't as big of a deal as they are now. Um, but it, it was more like you had no reference points, right? Like there was no, you couldn't just boot up a website and you know reality check the dot pattern. Correct, and like back then, it's like, what do I look at? You know, how do I figure out if this is real or not? Oh, with the bend test. Okay, let me just bend a you know the most valuable card in my collection in half and, and see if it you know snaps or not. And then what if it snaps? You know, then you're done anyway. So, I mean, it was it was a different time then. So, so when you came back to the game, were you a full sets guy? Were you were you trying to get sets uh, sets of everything that came out? Uh so me and a buddy of mine, we kind of we kind of put our collections together. And back then, we were doing type two because when anybody comes back, type two is the easiest thing to get into. Sure, that's what, that's what they used to call standard for anybody who's under thirty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in I'll use modern terms, standard. Uh, we went and got four of every rare for every set in standard. So we got. Uh, mirrored in block four of every card um and then we got an additional four of every uncommon and common because there were two of us so we didn't want to fight over commons and uncommons because that would just be silly um and then we did that all the way up until ravnica my buddy got married and then he was he kind of dropped off the face of the earth for magic for quite some time um it's funny because he recently got back into it and now i'm i'm where he was you know 10 years ago right. <laughs> it's uh it's funny how that works and so you're you're collecting like full sets for purposes of playing standard i'm assuming you're playing some at at friday yeah. night magic and then how yes. does it transition from that to deciding you want to start going after summer and power and so when we got back into it in champions block um i always wanted to have a, a set of power so i slowly started building a set of power um and then once my power set got complete, then I did, you know, 
dual lands, and then the dual lands transitioned into beta dual lands. Um, was your first then, set of power unlimited? Yes, my first set of power was unlimited. Got um, but back before that, when I was in high school, I had I didn't have a Lotus. Um, I had a beta Mox Sapphire, I think a beta time walk and then like an unlimited recall or something along those lines uh, but like i said all that disappeared uh when i was in college and i sold it all and, and around around college years you're talking getting a couple hundred dollars for some of those yeah that was uh you know the high point was the uh beta sapphire at 200 dollars uh and, and so. you probably felt like you were making it like a bandit at that point oh yeah yeah i mean back then i i, I Right before I went to college, I started collecting a beta set, and I, I was very meticulous. Like I, I just I had to have really nice cards in it. So I found the best ones that I could, going to GPs and and um, PTQs, and um, yeah, I, I never finished it. Um, I ended up selling it off, and I think I got like two thousand dollars for my collection back then, which was a lot of money yeah. for for the cards back then. Um, but yeah, it was just. just Hmm. absurd what what that stuff would be worth today yeah i mean i remember, I remember during that era uh my father lives in near cleveland ohio and i'm in toronto canada and we used to pass back and forth through that corridor or pass travis through buffalo um a few times a year and whenever we were traveling together we'd always stop in at every magic store along you know i-90 or whatever and multiple times we had a shot at you know, dirt cheap, fifty to one hundred and fifty dollar lotuses and moxes and so forth, and said, "Ah, this game may not last long enough for this to go anywhere." It's crazy well, to buy in on a hundred dollar piece of cardboard. Well, that's the funny thing, um, because you know, mm-hmm. Star, what Star Wars had that decipher had that Star Wars CCG, yeah, uh, which was really strong. And I know guys that that went all in on that and traded their magic collections to get into that and <laughs> <laughs> it was just crazy go well. no those are still semi-valuable aren't they like that game has quite a following I, i'll be honest yeah. with you i think the only the only one that i'm aware of i think is death star 2 uh is the rare set for that one right. uh, my, my buddy that we split you know for converged our collections together uh for standard uh, he would know better than I. <laughs> I haven't been following that stuff in ages. Mm-hmm. All right, so you're, you're putting together, you're starting to get into beta, and then what happens? Uh, then I started getting into beta power. Um, I bought a couple nice cards off eBay, overpaid a little um, on a couple of them. I got a couple graded. They didn't grade as, as high as I had hoped. And then I just sold them off. You know, and then... Then I had, um, what I have? Then I started getting into baseball cards, sadly. <laughs> uh-huh. um, sold some stuff off. And uh, I don't know, it just kind of went in a different direction. Not the right direction, but went in a different <laughs> direction. And um, you know, just, just went along that path until you know I got married, I got a house. Then I started selling off my collection, and then I was good friends with a Wizards of the Coast employee. Um, after buying a couple test prints from him, and can, then can you, can you back up a second? Just tell our, our listeners what a test print is and where they come from. So a test print is something that's made um, with permission of Wizards of the Coast. They 
usually it's Carter Monday that does it. Sometimes they do it uh, inside testing. Um, so a test card is basically a new um, frame or style that's that they try to see if it you know is appealing to the eye. So it, if you guys Google uh, judgment test prints MTG, I'm sure librarities will come up and you'll be able to see that the test frames that they were looking at for eighth edition. Uh, because there was a transition from 7th to 8th edition frames. Um, and there's two different versions of that. There's the one with the judgment uh, set symbol and one with the unglued set symbol. And the unglued set symbols are much more rare. So what they did is, I believe what they did, is they did the unglued test prints first. And then they did the judgment test prints in-house. So if if anybody has a judgment test prints, it's like half the thickness of a card. It's almost like an artist proof, but it's actually a little bit thinner and a little bit flimsier. Uh, the printing pattern is not the same. It's not not like a normal magic card. Um, and they don't they weren't made to last. They were basically made to, to play, uh, to test the new frames to see if it was going to be something that they could use or if you know they needed to go in a different direction. And um, they ended up going in a different direction. So, it's, it's, like I said, a test print is it's a test card. Um, right. So, and the deal is that internally there's a team that's using these to test out the set, and yeah. they're the only ones who ever touch them. And then when they're done with them, you know, some get lost, destroyed, maybe kept in their own personal collections, and a few leak out of the company, out into the market. That's correct. Uh, usually what happens is, you know, depending on who you are in the company, you have access to certain things. Um, some it, it, the funny thing is my Wizards of the Coast contact got all these items through a charity auction. Um, so he bought. <laughs> That's not like he, nice auctions. Oh, uh, it was it was bananas when I heard the story. Um, I won't give his name out, but uh, he he bought a box of cards, and I think he paid like fifty bucks for it, and it had like Texas foil Urza's saga. <laughs> or, not there's a saga but like the the judge foils from that time frame which like is, cradles and stuff oh yeah cradles lightning bolts duresses um crazy you know the whole i think it's a print run of 10 cards uh, and he got multiple sets of each of them um and then there was like judgment test prints in there some of the, uh, the we i call them judgment test prints they're eighth edition test prints sure. uh, one one just has the judgment symbol one has the un- unglued symbol and he got you know those as well um and he ended up trading some of that uh, to get the uh, beta sheets that are sitting at Wizards of the Coast, um, I believe, when you walk in. So, I mean, he 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 gave back to the company, you know. Nice. That was a pile of stuff, and, and nobody wanted it. So <laughs> he ended up with it. Okay, so then some of it ends up in your hands? Yes. So um, I bought a good portion of his collection in 2012, December 2012, I believe it was. Um, for, and at that point, are, are you buying that for the pur- purpose of profit? Are you looking to flip it, or are you just greedily storing it away in your personal collection as part of your treasure hoard? So there was a significant amount of stuff that I wanted for myself, because I had pretty much sold off everything at that point, and except for like a couple beta dual lands that I had in a deck. Um, 
I had pretty much sold off everything. And I was like, this is a good time. Like the collections like this don't come up very often. Um, that collection had 60 or 70 pieces of power Ooh. in it. Uh, almost a full alpha and beta playset of dual lands uh, along with, you know, other stuff um, that is just slipping my mind. Um, Good stuff. Yeah, I don't know if I can say that. Yeah. So alpha, beta, test things, but I don't know if I can say we're in there. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't yeah. overstep my boundaries there. But uh, it, it was it was the collection of all collection. And that today, that collection would probably be worth seven hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, I, I wrote an article about a collection I bought here in Toronto uh, a few years ago and called it the Super Collection. I feel like I have to pass the mantle on to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that. that collection it's not even close. Second to none. I mean, there was. He he collected good stuff, and he still has stuff. He he keeps pulling stuff out of the woodwork. It's absolutely bananas what what he had amassed, and that I literally bought probably twenty five percent of his collection. All right, so I, I want to ask you a question here because I'm very curious about, it, and I'm I'm sure some of our listeners are too. Is you're kind of like, oh well, I picked up. You know, I just picked up some beta duels and then I picked up some power and then I just grabbed this collection for several grand. Like, were you just churning magic, buying and selling magic cards constantly and building up a bankroll to do this? Did you have a lucrative job that allowed you to do this? Did you have a trust fund? I'm just kind of curious because like when you talk about these purchasing habits, like I'm like, ah, I couldn't do all of this. Like, where is it? I guess, where is it coming from? Well, I wish I had a lucrative job. That would have been nice. Um, so my my father died when I was 15. Um, he left everything that he had uh, in a trust that got paid out when I turned 25, 30, and 35. Um, and some of the assets... Actually, none of the assets came from that, uh, which is odd. But... Uh, then my aunt passed away in 2015, um, and it was my father's aunt. And I was only, the only one on that side of the family that was the direct receiver of that. So most of the funds came from her um, and her assets that were left. Um, even when I started back into Magic, you know, I, I had about $30,000, which is a lot of money, don't get me wrong. Um, but it took me about seven or eight months to completely wipe that out. And I was like, okay, now I don't have any money. What do I do next? <laughs> um, and then my parents were kind of in control of, of my, my funds at that point. Cause being, you know, I was still fairly young. I was 20, mid twenties, you know, not, not really having a grasp of how hard it is to earn money um, and how fast it can disappear. So, Two thousand and nine, I got or yeah, two thousand and nine, I got married, um, bought a house. Then I started slowly selling majority of the collection that I had amassed from from that initial thirty, and just you know grinding paychecks, trying to get cards here and there, and trading up and and all these other things. Um, and then in two thousand and twelve, um. I went to my parents and I was like, look, this is a collection of a lifetime. I, I don't want to pass this up. And they were like, okay, well, there's some money. There's, you know, it's majority of the money that your aunt left you, but 
you know, it's there if you think this is a good opportunity. And I was like, I don't know when another opportunity like this is ever going to arise, if it ever <laughs> does. Uh, so I was just like, let's do it. Um, and that's that's pretty much how that happened. Uh, I wish I had grinded it out and was able to get to that point, but unfortunately, um, I, I, I hadn't. I mean, you know, um, so, so this was that purchase was the twenty five percent of the wizards' employees' stash. Yeah. yeah, and can can you tell us what that was worth at the time? Uh, it was low six figures. Right, that's quite a collection. I, I did the same thing wow. as I, I encountered a collection that was a very good deal uh, and had to reach out to my <clears throat> family for some support to get to make the initial investment, although it was uh, a magnitude less than you were dealing with. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of scary when you get into numbers in the six figures, I, I have to say. I mean, it, at this point, it's not that uncommon uh, for collections to be, you know, sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000. Like, a, a nice set of Alpha Power is going to run you fifty grand. You know, it's it, it, <laughs> times have changed. They really have. Yeah, and there's, I mean, what we've got now is the nostalgia period where the people that, you know, you said you were in grade seven when you started playing. I was in university. And the people in between the two of us um, are the people in the sweet spot and in or moving towards their peak earning years and full of nostalgia, um, you know, picking up the stuff that we wished we had when we were younger. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, James, I, you've got a couple of questions here. Uh, and I know Brian's on a little bit of a timer. Do you want to ask some of your uh some of your better ones, the ones you're more eager into hearing an answer to. Well, let's, I mean, let's bridge, finish the story and bridge the gap. I guess the um, you know you had you picked up that big that piece. Yes. How much of that have you in the intervening years have you kept versus sold? Uh, pretty much all of it is gone at this point. So basically, what happened was is I got that, and then somebody was like, "You're probably one of the only people that could could create a nice graded alpha set," and I was just like, the light bulb went on. And I was just like, let's do it. <laughs> and then, you know, I reached out to a couple people in the community, some that I'm not so fond of anymore. Um, got some nice cards. Ended up doing alpha, beta, completing both of those. Uh, and then while I was doing both of those, I went after Arabian Antiquities, Legends, and P3K. So I had way too many things on my plate. Uh, <laughs> And then, then a, a big investor came in and started buying alpha cards. And I was like, okay, I can't, I don't have the bankroll that this guy has. Uh, I can't compete with him. So I'm just going to focus on beta. And I focused on beta. I ended up with the, the number one graded beta set in the world before I started piecing it out. Uh, and I had the number two alpha set before I started piecing it out. Is the, uh, the alpha collector still involved? No, he actually sold his collection uh, to another well-known, well-respected individual uh, in the community. But I, I think that needs to... I, I can't give any names. I don't think that person wants to be known at this point in time. Yeah, that's fine. No, no, no I, I wouldn't ask. But just out of curiosity, like, was that over seven figures? I don't think so. Um, I believe the guy sold it for a loss. I, I think he wanted some fast cash, and that was the only big player in the room. I know I had a, an offer from, I believe, the same person for my beta set, and it just wasn't enough for me to bite. So I, I passed and ended up getting a better deal a couple months later. So mm. this uh, is this is one of the you know one of the reasons we want to talk to you is that 
at the level that you've been operating, the number of interested parties out of the and capable parties, the ones that can actually muster the funds to get involved in taking things off your hands, shrinks from the, the supposed 15 million magic players worldwide down to a very, very small number of people, right? Yeah, it's about, uh, it, you know, there, there's a bunch of people that can pull it down. Um, it's just they want a better deal. And, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, you're not going to get 75% of your collection. But, like, they, they don't understand the value that's there. They don't understand that there's 420 test prints in the collection. There's 70-some thousand dollars worth of high-priority singles. And when I say high-priority singles, I mean, it's not like, you know, garbage, you know, foils and whatnot. We're talking about high-quality, you know, easy-to-move items. Like, there's... Yeah. And we're, we're not talking about lightning bolts. We're talking about your massive stash of city of traders. Yeah, like there's a hundred and something city of traders. There's almost a hundred <laughs> Sarah Sanctums. I mean, these are cards that are fifty. You know, most of the cards in the collection are over fifty dollars. So, so that stuff that is reserve list. Yep. But was for a long time, you know, kind of on the sidelines because it didn't have any formats that were driving its use. You know, Sarah right. Sanctum is a good example. City of traders sees certainly legacy and vintage play. Um, but Sanctum's a pretty good example of something that's appreciated quite a lot. Um, oh, yeah. You know, when were you? When did you decide to go deep on that stuff, and what was your thinking? Sarah Sanctum's I got into um, it's about a year and a half ago. They were about okay, so, so pretty recent, thirty five dollars, and I bought one hundred and fifty of them. And that, right, that, so when we're when we're reporting some of this movement on our reserve list week after week, some of that's you. Um, that specific <laughs> card, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Yeah, that was that was me. I bought in to City of Traders a little late. Um, I bought out TCG Player completely and every website that I could find them on. I bought two hundred of them. Took and, a, and, are, and are, finding, are you finding that out of your personal cash reserves, or are you flipping cards into? That was personal money? cash reserves. Uh, I spent about forty thousand dollars on City of Traders and Sarah Sanctums and a couple other cards. <laughs> Um, so, so that that kind of movement with magic cards only comes with the confidence of experience, yeah. Yeah, and I was like, ah, oh, City of Traders should be two hundred dollars, like all day long, and I was sadly. Mistaken. How do you, <laughs> how do you get rid of? Oh, yeah, right. For now, for right? now, I still don't think that's a mess. <clears throat> with a reserveless card, that's not a mess. It's just a not yet. But uh, how do you, like? What is your plan for getting rid of that? Like City of Traders, it's two hundred dollars, right? How are you planning on getting rid of? What did you say? Like you know. It's, 200 of them or something like that at that price are you going to dealers and just trying to sell them the stack at 70 percent so i mean that's one option uh the 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 better option is to just toss them up on tcg player toss them up on ebay with buy it nows and just let them go um you know you take a 12 percent hit either way you look at it where they're about um i think it's 13 on ebay i think tcg player is right around the same and uh, yeah, you take it, take the percentage hit, and you walk away with you know, one hundred and seventy five dollars per city of trader. You make twenty bucks on the ones that you paid one hundred fifty on, and everything okay. under that you made more. Right. So I mean, I'm so I guess one of the reasons that we had you on was that you've recently announced that you're selling a really large portion of your collection. Is this is this your whole collection, or is this just a a, a portion? Um, it's value wise, it's about. 75 percent um i still have an edh deck that is quite absurd it's not even done and it's 
is probably around seventy thousand dollars. Is it just all test prints or what? <laughs> um, it's got some big test prints in there. It's got a, a test print Ulamog from M15 that costs one less than the normal Ulamogs. <laughs> There's only seven of those known at the moment. I have four of them. Uh, it sounds like we're going to have to do a separate photo essay piece on that deck <laughs> on MTG Price. I'll get in touch on that. So one of the other things I noticed in this collection is you have a pile of masterpieces in here. And Travis and I were consider ourselves to have been well ahead of the curve on that, um, getting in pretty early in December of 2016. How early did you decide to go deep on masterpieces? I got into masterpieces, I think it was early last year. So I think you guys were a little bit ahead of me on that one. Um, and I, I just started picking up the ones that I saw that could, there could be movement on. Um, and I bought, I have a buddy in Europe who bought a bunch of them for me uh, off um, Magic Card Market. Um, yeah. By, mm-hmm. by buying them off Magic Card Market and wiping them off TCG Player and all the websites, it moves the needle a lot. Yep. Yeah. I'm sure you guys are aware. That's where we're aware. <laughs> the, yeah, and I... I mean, I'm still stunned to this day that a year later, after us making a bunch of noise about purchasing in Europe and lots of people participating in that process, there are still huge gaps in a variety of cards. Oh, yeah. It's insane. Um, it, one of them is Ancient Tomb. I don't know if you guys know, but there, there's a pretty big gap between the U.S. price and the European price on, on Expedition Ancient Tomb. Right. Well, I do now. I mean, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... My, I have my buddy said that buys stuff off uh, Magic Card Market for me. He's like, yeah, they're two hundred dollars here. And I'm like, what? They're only like one hundred and sixty here. And uh, I think the needle. I think it's getting closer now. I mean, this was a couple weeks back, so I, I think they the prices are are starting to get better. So, so if it's personal, don't bother. You know, by all means, keep it to yourself. But uh, is there any particular reason you've decided that now is the moment that you want to unload all of this? Um, I have some projects that I'm working on. Um. I would like to start an investment group dealing with magic cards and, and probably comic books. Um, I see big markets in both of them still. Mm. Uh, and I would like, you know, to get some, some big players in that space. And, you know, this, that's not what selling off the collections about, but that's what, you know, I'm, I'm starting to turn and, and try to try to work that, as an avenue to, you know, get some big investors into it and have them not be scared since, you know, my name's pretty big in the magic community. It's not big in the comic community. Not sure. at all. I mean, comic comic guys, you got two, three million dollars worth of comics. It's not a big deal. Like, it's it's that, that crazy. Uh, but, you know, in the magic world, if you've got $50,000 worth of cards, you're kind of a, you know, you're not a big, you know, a big fish, but you're not. That's far notable. From it. Yeah. Sure. So, so this might be your buy-in on that on that group. Is that something that's going to be like people will notice publicly, or is that going to be quietly um, going down in the shadows? I, I, there's a couple people I would like to talk to, um, you know, that have large assets and they're looking to have a five-year, ten-year return. Uh, those are the kind of people that I would like to to talk to about the the opportunities involved there. Um, there's some some legal things that I need to to get in place um, in order to do this. Yeah, but um, you know that that's where I'm headed. Um, the main reason I'm selling off the collection is I would like to, you know, 
potentially build my dream house with my wife and kids. And, uh, cool. you know, that'll help me get there. Um, it's obviously the house is not going to be $225,000, which some people on Reddit seem to think, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, it's, it'll be, you know, it'll be a, a piece of it. Right. So is there anything in this, in this collection that you refuse to sell that will, oh, is treasured by you that you consider to be yours forever? Um, there are some things that I have, uh, that I've held back, um, because it's not the right time to sell. Uh, one of those things is a quad 10 BGS graded beta load or beta, um, demonic tutor. Hmm. Um, it's one of two BGS tens. It's the only quad 10. Uh, so it's, you know, that, that's one of the cards that I have a couple people hounding me about. And I'm just like, I'm not ready to sell it, but like, I don't think the price is there yet. I think it could be, you know, a very valuable card in the next five or 10 years. Um, there's a couple pieces of magic art that I have that, uh, I very highly coveted by myself. Uh, one of them, seventh edition, Sarah angel. Nice. Another one is Janara. And then there's a couple other ones I have that is just close to my heart. Like I have seventh edition city of brass that, uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that artist. It's Ron. What, what Lowski, I believe is how you pronounce his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did four magic pieces and then sadly passed away. He's a big sci-fi artist and, uh, city of brass is by far his best out of the four pieces. And, uh, he's, and, yeah, and the, those sexy seventh foils look gorgeous. Oh, those are my favorite. Uh, there's one sealed set that I have in my collection. It's a 7th edition foil sealed set. It's only one of two that I know of. I'm sure there's more out there, but there's only two that I know of. Um, and that's going to be one of the ones that's going to be hard for me to part with. Um, Were your, I noticed on, on Facebook that you have a whole bunch of foiled sealed sets. Did those come from Magic Online, like yourself playing personally, or were you just buying those after the fact? I was just buying them after the fact. I was like, you know what? If I ever get into standard or my kids ever want to play standard or I want to play with standard with them, then... <laughs> they're they're going to need a foil se- sealed seventh to fool around with? Well, I, I'll, I'll need it, but... <laughs> I need the regular stuff. <laughs> so, it was more of a, a kind of thing where I was like, you know what? If one of these sets explodes, then, then this is going to be a good thing. So let me, let me jump on these while they're still cheap. Um, and people don't realize you can you can get the sets off, you know, Magic Online for like two hundred and fifty dollars for most of them. It just just makes sense. I mean, some of the sets I wish I'd gotten. I wish I'd gotten Ravnica back when that was on Magic Online. I mean, good God, can you imagine now? It's like a fifteen hundred dollar set. Yeah, my my father's got it. Has been playing Magic Online since pretty much its inception, and he's got. Oh, everything in non-foil and quite a few of the foil sets as well stashed away so um, it's been qu- there's a lot of appreciation on the 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 stuff that is say more than eight years old right oh yeah yeah and that was my that was my thinking i was like you know what we just put some of this away and see what happens um and then i started selling pieces of my collection i was like okay i'm not going to get to the number that i want if i don't start putting more stuff back into it and then i was like you know what yeah these sets are pretty but i'm probably 
going to feel bad if I open them. (laughs) (laughs) Might as well get rid of them. Yeah, that's the thing. So you said you have a, do you have a deck that you maintain? Like, is there a format you still play? Um, I don't play anything at the moment. I honestly don't have time. I've got three young kids. I've got a a one-year-old, a three-year-old, and a five-year-old, and they keep me very, very busy. Uh, I have not been able to get out of the house to play Magic in, God, seven years. Seven, <laughs> yes, seven years. So, you know, I get so for you the magic these. hobby has been, you know, part job, part financial hobby. Oh for yeah, quite some time. yeah. It's been, you know, it, it used to be where you know I had a full time job and I just didn't look very often, and then you know somebody would tell me about a spike that happened and I'd miss it, <laughs> and by the time I got to it, it was too late. Um, and then a bunch of the websites like FTG Goldfish and FTG, you know finance speculate they they came out and you know that there's much better information out there now than there used to be um which is fantastic makes my life a lot easier to track prices <laughs> um, right and tcg player has their collection uh which isn't great because it doesn't take into consideration all the you know beat the hell cards that are up there for cheap uh but it gives you a general idea right all right, so um, you know, where, do you plan post the sale of this collection to still be involved in MGG Finance? You still see this as something that you're going to be, oh yeah, spending yeah. time on? Oh yeah, definitely. I, I'll never leave Magic. It's it's ingrained in me at this point. Um, and people keep asking me, "Are you are you going to be done? Are you going to be done?" And I have I have people that are like, "Oh, I didn't let you know this because I thought you were done." I'm like, <laughs> "You've never done Magic." <laughs> so, it's over <laughs> so my final question was where do you see magic collecting going in five years but seeing as how you said you might be starting an investment group on a five to ten year horizon i think we can <laughs> yeah. guess where you think it's going oh yeah yeah i mean i look if people think masterpiece prices are ever going to come down and expeditions are going to come down they're crazy it's not gonna happen the do only you- ones that might come down are the um the Amon Ket masterpieces <laughs> garbage <laughs> I'm, I'm glad we agree on on those borders yeah they're, they're oh God, they look so ugly <laughs> it, it it hasn't stopped me from buying some recently though on the basis that several of them are already at the tipping point yeah i i, I don't deny that I, I just can't wrap my head around how ugly they are yeah <laughs> and how hard to that. read they are it's uh but yeah, I mean, it's we're gonna see more spikes in the reserve list. It's it's just gonna happen. Like people and people don't understand. Like there there is a responsibility that Wizards of the Coast has to keep the reserve list in place. You know, for for the community and the well being of of Hasbro. Um, and people are just angry because I and I'm not trying to be mean by saying this, but some people are angry because they can't afford the cards, and I understand that. They also have to understand that people have spent a lot of money on these cards and it's the fiduciary responsibility of the company to keep those cards in check. Yeah, I mean, there's this is a whole other topic we could go off into for hours. Maybe we'll have you back to have this discussion again some other time. Um, but I will say two things that we bring up regularly. One is that I, I think that people totally underestimate the value of having unobtainium as an element in your game. Oh, yeah. Um, the the value to the brand of people being able to get into the game and hear the legendary stories of the $100,000 Black Lotus is part of what has kept the game 
exciting and alive for 25 years. Oh, yeah. Um, and the other part is that they don't want us playing old formats anyway. <laughs> no, I mean, it really doesn't help them. Uh, you know, standard is the bread and butter of, of their product. Um, I mean, you can see what the stock did when when Expeditions and Masterpieces hit. You can see it starting to trail off when Amonkhet came out. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, the whole the year where where those sets were out, or the year and a couple months or so, um, you can see the stock price just soaring. Because they sold so much product. And people don't understand how rare that stuff is. Like, it's one in every three boxes, I think, was the, the ratio. So if you. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's like two, two per case on average if you're lucky. Yeah, so if you expand that out across all the languages of all the printings that. The print run on masterpieces and expeditions is really low, probably around what unlimited rares are, and people don't understand that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When we started doing the math and then started looking at what was already a widening price discrepancy gap um, between Europe and the U.S., that was what got us to move a bunch of assets over there. I mean, I sold out of an, a fairly large portfolio of Magic Online um, cards that I was managing for a group, and then another set that I had. It was almost about 20,000 total once the tickets were sold um, and moved almost all of it into Masterpieces, I think, yeah. December and January of 2016 and 17. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of them. Mark's Opal is the big, the big Masterpiece. I don't see that one being under $500 in the next three, four years. It probably will hit it in the next two years uh, at the rate that it's going. Um, and that's the big one. See, now Soul Ring and a couple of the other ones, you have other options if you want to, quote-unquote, pimp your deck. Um, so, I mean, I, those are still going to be on the rise, but but not like Mox Opal. Mox Opal is just on a whole different level. It's a four of cross-format. Oh, yeah. And seems to be free of any uh, band danger that it might have enjoyed two years ago. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the things. And like I said, that's the, you know, "Quote unquote pimp version." There's, you know, you have other options with Soul Ring. I mean, you can go Summer, you can go Beta, you can go Alpha. It just depends what your taste is. <laughs> I don't know if you um, can consider Al- uh, Summer Soul Ring <laughs> to be at all comparable. Like, <clears throat> I agree. Like, technically, you do have the option to play that instead of Masterpiece, but that's a that's a like what two digit difference between deciding which copy to play. <laughs> can right. Can you, uh, Brian? Can you give us uh, some just a quick back- background on Summer? Uh, probably a lot of listeners aren't aware of what Summer Magic set is. Yeah. So, so what happened is they they printed a revised. Um, then there was a shortage of revised in the summer of 1994, um, and there was a couple errors in revised. So they were trying to fix the surrender free error that happened, um, and accidentally made another error with Hurricane, um, and it was blue instead of green. Uh, so that's the infamous blue Hurricane that everybody talks about when they talk about summer, which is funny because the Serendib Afrid is the most, well, was the most valuable card. I'm not sure if Underground City has passed it yet, but um, the most infamous uh, summer card is Serendib Afrid, which a lot of people don't know. Um, and so the deal is that there was a short print run that only made it out to, I believe, the Midwest, right? Uh, so there was some that went to Midwest. There was some, I believe, that went off to Belgium. Um, and then it was all recalled. And majority of it was destroyed. There was a fair amount that was kept by a couple people on the Wizards' uh, side. 
which has surfaced in the past couple of years, which has kind of stopped the crazy price changes that were happening um, in 2009. So, Because it, it turns out there was more of it available than people thought. Oh, yeah. There was one. I, I, like I said, I won't release names because I don't want these people to get emails and all the other garbage. But there was um, a collection that came up. It was a huge amount of summer. Um, and there's a unscrupulous person in the community that, that they reached out to or found them and decided he would rope them into a contract and try to sell it for them. Um, and it just kind of ruined the whole aspect of summer. Um, and the prices kind of fell out or bottomed out uh, because too much came up on the market at one time. And then, you know, it, it's kind of, I don't know if that person lost the contract or, or what happened, but I, I've heard, you know, rumors that, you know, the owners got all the cards back, but I, I highly doubt it knowing that person. <laughs> Funny thing is, I don't know this story, but I'm pretty sure I know who you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Just by the tone of your voice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's the same person I was just warning my father not to deal with not 48 hours ago. Yeah, he's pretty he's pretty well known um, in the community as a scumbag. So I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, fair enough. So we want we, we don't need to go down a dark path, but um, you know we're past your available time slot, so we'll probably wrap things up here with our thanks. Um, fascinating background and history on your collection and your involvement in the community. Maybe we can cap things off. Do you have uh, any um, a spec that you might share with our listeners that you think is undervalued and they should be targeting? Uh, God, I haven't looked <laughs> in quite some time. Um, I'm like putting you on the spot. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's got to be something on a reserved list. Um, yeah, I'll be what honest. do you think? What do you think about Guy's Cradle being a future thousand dollar card? You know, it's funny. I'm the one that moved the needle on that one too. <laughs> <laughs> I told everybody, I'm like, this card should not be two hundred dollars, and I bought every single non foil I could find that was under two hundred dollars. Then I bought every foil that I could find under six hundred dollars. Um, yeah, and that that moved the needle on that one. Shortly after that, they're three hundred dollars for regular ones. I think seven or eight. My, my theory oils. is that you don't even need legacy and vintage play for that one. You just need EDH players to eventually acquire enough of them and, and never release them. Oh yeah. I mean, the print run on saga is not, not huge. And people aren't popping boxes because boxes are like 1400 bucks or so now. So if you want a cradle, it's just cheaper to buy one. If you can find one <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, the card that I would say that's undervalued is probably uh, Survival of the Fittest. You know, it's it's an EDH playable card. Last time I looked, <laughs> Utter, utterly busted. Yeah, it, it's broken. Um, you know, it doesn't really see a whole lot of play in other formats, but it, it's one of those cards. Print run on Exodus is not crazy, and that's why I targeted City of Traders. But one thing we didn't get a chance to ask you was, how do you figure out the prices for all of this stuff? Like, you're just like rattling the prices off. You're like, oh, yeah, that's not worth seven grand. That's worth 12 grand. Or, oh, you know, that's worth about like 75 grand right now. Like, how, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin on any of this. Uh, so a lot of it's speculation and what what people are willing to pay or what you think they're willing to pay. Um, 
I know the numbers that I got on my beta stuff were good numbers. Uh, wasn't 100% happy on a couple of them, but overall, I uh, was very happy with the prices that I got. Um, I do know a couple other people that sell in the community, and if I need help, you know, evaluating a card, you know, we'll brainstorm together uh, if they haven't sold one recently, and we'll look at the pop reports and kind of get a general census of how many are available at the grade that we're looking at, and uh, you know, base it off of prior pricing. Um, although the tens are very hard to to price, um, especially when there's only one of them. Uh, so, I mean, it, it can be tricky. Um, a lot so, of it is instinct and experience built up, not only in your own activity, but also you're a moderator on the high end groups on Facebook. So you see a lot of data across your, across your screen. Oh yeah. Yeah. We, <laughs> I'm a moderator on that group. I created a graded group, um, to thwart the other graded groups moderator. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, our group's way bigger now than, than that group will ever be, but I'm not bragging on that spot. (laughs) I, I, I just want, that was a question I, I thought would be interesting. Um, and that's kind of what I figured that you really have to have just gone through the reps and the iterations of so many buys and cards at that level that you kind of just start to under price by instinct rather than like checking, looking it up on a website somewhere. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is sometimes you guess. And so, <laughs> I've guessed on a couple cards recently. Um, I, I had a quad library of Alexandria, quad 9.5, that I had graded from a set that I had bought. Um, and I was like, oh, this card's probably worth, you know, 3000 And then I got an insane offer that was almost twice that. And I was like, okay. I guess I'm wrong. <laughs> Glad I didn't put a price on this because it would have been gone instantly. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's sometimes it's hard. Arabian Nights stuff graded nine five quad nine five is super hot right now. There are a bunch of people trying to put together Arabian Nights sets, and people don't understand how hard it is to find nine fives in quad nine fives. I actually opened a pack today. Um, sure, something we all do normally. Yeah, yeah, so did I. Yeah. I, I Grabbed have, a beer, I popped had, a pack of Arabian Nights. I had four packs. Uh, I cracked one open. Uh, my top... I, I, there's a YouTube video of it. Uh, I just uploaded it today, and it's pretty bad video quality, but yeah, it's, I didn't have a stand or anything, so it's, it's pretty terrible on my part. Um, I should have been better prepared. Uh, but I opened it, uh, and... But as soon as I open it, I see Bottle of Suleiman. I'm like, oh, this pack's going to be terrible. Um, and then I start flipping over the commons, and I, and I get down to two cards, and it's Bottle <laughs> of Solomon, or Suleiman. And uh, the next card I flip over is Library of Alexandria, and I'm just like, what? I thought those were all mappable. Or not, or, I, I'll or be honest with you, that came out of the box. It came out of the box that uh, was the four packs you kept for yourself? Actually, I got them back in trade. I sold off the uh, the. I think I had three packs, and I sold those when I sold my sealed stuff. Um, and then these I got back in a trade. And I'll be honest with you, I don't think there's many of them out there because I I sent off, I think thirty or so to get graded by BGS or PSA. Um, and then I know some guys. I know two guys that bought ten. Some of those went to. Um, what was it? Collector's Cash. And I know 
collector's cash took them out of the uh, the wrapping that I had them in. So I imagine there's only about 20 of those still, you know, wrapped the way that I wrapped them, if that. Um, and those packs are 100% unsearched. We d- I did it in 2016. There's a three-hour-long video on YouTube when I did it all uh, because everybody that bought one wanted to, to make sure that I wasn't searching them, um, which is kind of funny since probably the most trustworthy person or one of the most trustworthy persons so, in the community. <laughs> so I'm sorry. I don't quite um, understand where you're – you were taking loose Arabian Nights packs and wrapping them in something. So I had a that was so I had an Arabian Nights box that was consigned to me, um, and that was a, the packs that we. So that was where all the packs came from was from that box. And on camera, I opened the box. I showed everybody the box. It had a tiny tear in the top of the uh, shrink wrap. That was the only problem with the box. So I carefully cut open the shrink wrap, took all the packs out. Um, and then I took uh, card saver ones. I chopped two edges off of them so that it was like a book. You could open it. So I opened the card savers. I put the pack inside gently. And then I wrapped it all in paper with a little window on the front so you could see what was in it in case I was going to do another one later down the road. And basically what I did is I numbered... Uh, so. Everybody was given a number in the uh, that bought them, and so I know exactly how many of each exist. Uh, besides the ones that got graded, but all the graded ones are are on the video as well, uh, or on another video. I can't remember. I think it's on another video. But um, all the packs have numbers on them that didn't get sent off to PSA, and I signed every one of them. I dated them, and I had a little area that said cut here on the bottom corner so people wouldn't destroy the packs <laughs> when they tried to open the wrapping. Um, and then I taped it all up, and then I signed, you know, the, I think I signed the, I can't remember if I signed the tape. I think I signed the tape. Because I was like, if somebody tries to unwrap it and they are successful, they could just rewrap it. Um, but yeah, but there's they're 100% unsearched if you see one. It's signed by me. It has, if you ever seen my business card, it's got a, uh, it's, I don't know if you guys have seen the M fillers that are out there, but it looks like the, uh, it's the magic symbol and it's got a circle around it. And the circle is uh, all five colors uh, mm. in the circle, <laughs> which looks really cool. I had a friend of mine do that. And um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what, that's what I did to ensure people that they were getting a pack that was unsearched. And as far as I know, I'm the only one that's ever gone to that length. Yeah. To, to <laughs> you, do you have a multi-stage custom archival process that you invented on the spot. Yeah. And I was like, you know, people are like, how are you going to do it? And I'm just like, oh, God, I don't know. I got to think about this. <laughs> and it's funny. I was like, oh, this is probably only going to take me two hours. And it ended up taking me like three and a half hours to do it all on camera. And people are like, oh, my God, it's taking forever. And I'm just like... I don't want to mess this up. Like it was crazy. Because what's it what's the actually, value of the Arabian Nights pack in the open market right now? Oh God, I know people willing to spend a thousand dollars on them. Right. And what's the what, what do you think the EV is on a pack? Uh, honestly, it really depends. If you get a good pack and you get the cards graded, 
uh, it drastically changes. Um, and that's what most people are doing when they open them. But if you're just going to open a pack just for the cards, uh, your expected value is probably about 200 bucks. Right. So it's a, it's a lottery ticket situation. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's so small. It's, it might be more than 200 bucks. But it, some of the cards in that set have just gone bananas. And I'll be honest with you, I haven't really kept track of it. I know Serendipity is like 200 bucks by itself. I know City of Brass is, you know, 200, maybe more now. Diamond Valley's over 200, I believe. You know, there's a drop off on he's like five, six hundred dollars for a good one. <laughs> maybe more. <laughs> it's like it's been so long since I've looked at some of these prices. Um, but I mean, you grade a nice one. You grade a ten, even a trash wow. common in a tens of thousand dollars. Grading a ten is hard. It, I'm not not gonna lie, but yeah. But so, I mean, some of the cards are just so valuable. Even bizarre Baghdad's grade in nine five or like two grand. I mean, if you if you just happen to have an Arabian Nights pack and you crack it, uh, are do you just like? Are you just priced into trying to grade every card in there? Just ship the whole pack off and say grade every one of these in the hopes that one of them gets there? Mm, well, the pack that I opened today. Uh, so the library and the Suleiman had surface issues. Um, so I'm hoping they both get nines. Um, I'm hoping a bottle of Suleiman gets a nine five with a with a nine surface. But that one was better centered than the library. Uh, the library, if I get lucky, you'll get a nine. The there was one common in the pack that was worth grading. Uh, it was a flying man. It was really nicely centered, just you know, it's pristine uh, out of the pack. So I don't think it's going to get a ten. And the rest of the cards were just off center. And that's that's what you have to worry about the old sets. It's quality assurance gambling on center as bad then as they are now. Centering on the old cards is, can be very very tough. I, there was a box of uh, legends that I opened. All the uncommons were off off center, every single one. Of them. <laughs> it was a it was a brutal box. And then the other thing you have to be concerned about is that there was an antiquities box that I opened that didn't have a candelabra and didn't have a workshop. And I I know it came from a reputable source because they had it since you know it was printed. It never changed their hands because they were they had a warehouse, so they just kind of couple put a couple aside and that was it. So I know it wasn't tampered with, I know it wasn't searched. It's just really bad luck. (laughs) (laughs) So like, how bad is it? How much do you lose on something like that? The antiquities box I lost. Well, back then, antiquities boxes weren't worth what they're worth now. Um, they're worth about ten grand now, maybe a little more, to be honest. Um, back then, they were like five, and I got lucky with the antiquities box and got like seven BGS tens. But back then, BGS tens weren't worth a ton of money, so I probably lost about three thousand dollars when I cracked that box. But I still have some of the cards from it that have gone up in value. And I also had some extra graded cards. So I just sent the graded cards off to PWCC to auction them. Hmm. And you know, I'll, I'll, I'll more than recoup my costs, but I don't think I'll get back to, to what that box would have been worth if it was you know still sealed today. It's pretty funny over the last few years, 
um, guys like my dad who have just been collecting one ofs, like putting together sets and have all the old sets, look better than all of the guys who are hustling around trying to shark MGG finance. <laughs> just yeah. sitting on cards for the first two years has been excellent. There's so many sharks out there today. I, look, I'll go to a GP. I'd rather deal with the dealers. <laughs> it's just not worth the aggravation to deal with people on the floor. It's really not. I used to be different. Cool. All right. So I guess we'll wrap up there uh, with Brian Nascenti, um giving us fascinating background on some of the super high-end MTG finance stuff that goes on in the shadows when most of you are, are wondering what moves the needle. It's guys like Brian. <laughs> guys, I appreciate you having me. And, uh, it's, it's, we should do this I really appreciate it, Brian. Thanks it's very, much. very interesting to listen to all of this. And I'm sure a lot of people agree with me. All right. And that was a... Uh, Boy, that was a lot of interesting stuff in there. Um, uh, anyways, that brings us to a wrap for this week. Uh, where can our listeners find you, James? You guys can find me, as usual, on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com. And again, I'm Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at WizardBumpinBumpin. Uh, you can find me every Monday on MTGPrice.com with the Watchtower series and also uh, the webcast Cartel Aristocrats. And I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com Pro Trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. And that brings us to the end of episode 113. 114. Uh, really good show this week. I thought a lot of awesome information for everybody. Uh, I enjoyed it as always, James, and I will see you next week. Thanks again, Brian. Thank you, Travis. And we'll see you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm.